0: All right, let's look at the scriptures together. Um, if you look uh, on your newly redesigned worship folder, you'll see that we have our scripture today from Revelation chapter 3. And just because it's all in caps doesn't mean it's shouting at you. But those of you who understand that, I don't know. All right, so let's, look, let's read God's word together. I like it when you read out loud with me. Let's read. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see." and sat down with my Father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we're concluding our study on the last of the seven churches that Jesus spoke a prophetic word to. These seven churches are all church plants or influenced by the amazing work that the Apostle Paul did in Ephesus. If you go back and you look in the the book of Acts, you'll see something really interesting in Ephesus. It's that a spiritual transformation took place in the atmosphere over the entire region. That in some way, the territorial spirits, the demons who uh, molested and hindered the work of God in so many places were wrestled down over this territory. And uh, some of it was through the preaching of Paul, who preached something like 2,000 hours of training and discipline and discipleship and all manner of things over the course of two years. Uh, God moved in impressive and powerful ways. He raised up leaders and elders in that, that territory, and from that came these seven churches. They had been in existence for about 30 years when Jesus spoke to them, when he prophetically began to uh, lay bare the secrets of their hearts. Only two of the churches out of the seven retained a faithfulness to God. Most of the churches were a mixture. They had a mix of some good things. He would say, I know your deeds, I know that you did this, I know that you did that. But many of them, uh, though they had some good, their bad was overwhelming. And so the call of of Jesus was to repent. Um, When we look at Laodicea, we see a church where there's absolutely nothing good that Jesus can say about it. He commends nothing. He sees nothing redeemable. It's the only one of the seven in which there's nothing. Where everything that He has to say is really uh, a strong judgment against them. Now, the... The history of this town is interesting. Uh, it was originally um, established by one of the emperors of the Assyrian Empire, Antiochus. And it was such a beautiful valley. It was, a, it was one of the fertile valleys of, the, of Asia Minor. There was a river that ran through it, the Lycus River. It was very beautiful, very fertile. So he named it after his wife. And uh, Laodicea is the name of his wife, so he named the town after her. And it was prosperous. It was an incredibly prosperous town. And so people began flocking to this valley. It was on a trade route. It was an important, important city. It was interesting that what seemed to take place first in the city is the, the river itself became so polluted you couldn't drink out of it. It became so dirty, so nasty, that it was not useful. And so the people who had had such wealth and, and, and ease and comfort, even in their water supply, suddenly they're having to dig wells. But it's still not too tough because they just dig these shallow wells and they find water. But something begins to happen and not only does the river dry up, but the wells start drying up. And so, you know, their comforts are a little bit impinged upon and they, they have to go a little deeper. So they find and drill a deep well, well outside of the city, And they they build a pipeline from the place of the water, the underground water, into the city. Now, there's two things that you probably should notice about this. Now it's getting a little tougher in that city. But at the same time, they're so rich, they overcome tough things. Because to be able to build a pipeline in this time period, you had to have been both technologically advanced and very, very wealthy. So even though they had hardships or they had difficulties, for some reason this particular area was so rich it never seemed to bother them. As a matter of fact, in 60 A.D., which is about 30 years before Jesus' message is spoken to this church, about 60 A.D., a devastating earthquake takes place in Laodicea and completely levels the city. Now, if, if, if you know anything about earthquakes in the ancient world, a lot of times people would just abandon the city. It would be too much work to rebuild it. Or they would appeal to the emperor. At this point, they are part of the Roman Empire. But when the emperor asks and says, do you need any help? They said, no, we have plenty of money. We'll do it ourselves. And they completely, by the time this letter is written, they have completely rebuilt the city with their own resources and no help from anybody else. Now, when you hear that, you should be thinking through what Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea, who in many ways reflect the exact culture that they're from. We're rich. We have gained much in terms of material possessions. We feel very comfortable, and we don't need anything from anybody. Now, this letter is unique in that way. Think about it. Every other letter we've been studying, they are persecuted. They are suffering. They are going through even the threat of death for their faith. Not here. Not in Laodicea. Here, they are materially wealthy. They are, in many ways, comfortable. They have status. They They have everything this world can offer. And they're saying we have no need of, of anything. And this is the church to whom Jesus writes this message where there is no redeemable value there. So he says to them, he says, you're a lukewarm church. And Before he calls them out on their lukewarmness, he tells them who it is that's speaking to them. And he says these three things about himself, because Every time that he's about to give a word prophetically to the church, he always first reveals his own character and his own attributes so that you understand who's speaking to you. And the first thing he says, these are the words of the amen. And then he says, this is the faithful, I'm the faithful and true witness. And then in ESV, it says the ruler of God's creation. And in some of the other translations, it says the beginning of God's creation. These three these three uh, declarations of the character of Jesus. The first is he says, I'm the amen. This refers back, I think, to Isaiah where it it speaks and says uh, the revelation of God, that God is the amen. He is the God of amen. Now, many of you use the word amen and you use it at the end of your prayers. And sometimes I think people don't know what they're saying when they say amen. Maybe they say, that's all for now, God, or something like that, you know. And so they're, just, you know, they've learned to say "Amen," and and I'm done now, God. I'm going to go back to my television program or something, you know, and uh, whatever it is, though, the the actual idea of "Amen" is that you are affirming the truth of what you've said. There are sometimes when you fill out an application or or you're doing some kind of paperwork, and at the end of the paperwork, you will have to sign your name. And, and when you sign your name, above it will be, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I have faithfully and honestly said everything that I know about this. Or I have, I have filled this out in, in good character and, and not hiding anything from, from you in this. That's the idea of the amen. The amen is, I am verifying, I am confirming that everything that I have said is true. Jesus is the amen of God. He is the one who puts the exclamation point at the end and says everything that God says is true. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says Jesus is the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. He is the amen of God. He is the one you can count on. He is the one knowing all things. When he speaks to you, he's holding nothing back from you. He's confirming, he's validating, he's authenticating. As a matter of fact, he also says, I'm also the the faithful and the true witness. I, I, I like this commentator's word. He said, when Christ speaks on behalf of God, his testimony is absolutely true. Jesus is then the amen of God, the living verification and validation and confirmation of every promise God ever made, every plan God ever established, every covenant he set, Beyond that, everything he himself says, everything he himself does is sincere and true. This establishes at the very beginning in his dealings with this church that truth is critical. I'm kind of a blunt guy, so I want to I almost want to jump to the end of the letter and then come back to the middle. At the end of the letter, Jesus says to them, Repent. Now, some of you, maybe... You grew up a little bit like me, and, and, and I would try to repent. So I would feel really sorry for my sins, or I'd feel really guilty for my sins, or I'd feel ashamed of myself, because my mother always said, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> and so I would, I would have all those feelings, but what I really was doing when I had all those feelings was not repentance. I was sorry I got caught. I was sorry the consequences were not the ones I wanted. I've now been involved in many, many disciplined cases of pastors. Many cases where they had moral failure, where they had financial failures, where they had all kinds of issues. I had many, many cases, and here's what I've learned. The ones we catch never repent. Only the ones who turn themselves in. Only ones who begin to realize what I'm doing is a lie. What I'm doing is wrong. It isn't about emotion. It's about at the very heart and soul, at the very center of your being, you begin to see the truth. This is why Jesus says, I am the faithful and true witness. He's witnessing what's really in your heart. Not what you're doing to try to scam people. Not what you're doing to try to have a presentation. Not what you're doing in order to say to everybody, I'm fine. He's the faithful and true witness of what's really there. What you're really committed to. What you really depend on. See, the issue with most of us is we think sin is how we behave. Behavior is nothing more than a symptom of sin. What Jesus is saying to His church, what He says in every generation, to all of us, is sin is actually this simple. What do you depend on? If you are independent, if you need nothing, then every behavior, even if it's nice and moral and good, is still sin. Because it's what you're depending on what you're counting on, what you're trusting in. It's the heart that matters. The behavior only manifests that. Because what he says to him in the third is he says, I'm the ultimate. I'm the foundation of the whole world. I'm the preeminent one. I'm the priority. This is what it means, whether it says beginning of creation or whether it says ruler of creation. The word used there that Jesus uses that John writes is Jesus says, I'm either your ultimate or I'm not. Some of us have tried in some ways. We want God in our pocket. We want God in our pocketbook. We want God in our lives because we want Him to carry out what we think Is our destiny. How many people end up saying prayer doesn't work because you can't get God on your agenda? Because it won't turn out the way you want it to turn out. How many people lose faith because God won't protect their ultimate? When Jesus says, I'm the ruler. I'm the beginning. I'm the... I'm the ultimate. When he says that, he's saying to that church, he's saying to us, if I'm not the ultimate, then everything you're doing is in sin. And so repentance becomes a way of you beginning to say, I believe the truth and I reject the lie. It's as simple as that. At some point, when you stop depending on the lie and you start depending on the truth, then your behavior will change. But in some ways you can mask behavior, you can modify behavior in order to be acceptable to a group of people. For example, how many people end up trading one addiction for another? In other words, the heart hasn't changed. Repentance has not really happened. They just don't want the consequence of one addiction, so they turn to another. This is a heart issue. This is Jesus speaking to his church, and he's saying, I'm the amen of God. Am I your amen? I am the true and living witness. Do you think you fool me? And I am the ultimate. I'm the source. I'm the end. Do you know, the only one who knows your end from your beginning is Jesus. Jesus. He has, I mean, just to take a moment here, He has two relationships with you already. He has a relationship with who you are now, and He has a relationship with who you will be because He's not locked in time. So He already knows what resources you need. He already knows what experiences you need. He already knows what you need to become, what He knows you will become, and what you've always wanted to become. But in order for that to happen, for you to experience in a wonderfully meaningful way, you have to stop depending on things that are not ultimate. Amen. And you have to connect your life, connect your heart, and depend on that which is ultimate. You know, if we're honest, the least faithful and true witness has been your heart. We live in a society that says do what you feel idiots please don't speak that to a pedophile don't speak that to someone who has murder in their heart be true to your heart no crucify that heart get a new heart you understand what i'm saying well culture is a big part of this it's a big part of this. and in, in other words, remember the culture that this church was established in? It was a prosperous culture. It was a comfortable culture. It was a tolerant culture. It was a, to- a culture where ease and resources were readily available. This is the mo- one of the most interesting of the letters because, because we don't see a lot where the faith is being lived out where there's prosperity. Most of the places we see faith living down, lived out where there's desperation. And some people will say to you, the only time you ever see revival is when people are desperate economically or they're desperate physically or they're desperate in their relationships. But Jesus is actually speaking to a culture and to a church culture in which there is no external desperation. But he's calling them to internal desperation. Now, are you tracking with me so far? So, the Lord Jesus has a very spiritually refined taste bud. Alright, it says, I tasted you, and you're not hot, and you're not cold, you're lukewarm. Now, I've been thinking about this a good bit. What is, it, what is he referring to? And I, I am absolutely certain. That he's not saying to them, I wish you were for me or I wish you were against me. A lot of people have said that over the years. I wish you were for me passionately or I wish you were against me passionately. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think the illustration of the water begins to help us understand what he's really saying. Think think about this with me. And it might make you thirsty. Uh, (laughs) On a cold day or a cold night... And somebody brings you a hot drink, whether it's hot chocolate. I would, and when I envision it's hot chocolate, not made from a packet. Right. And, uh, and, it, and it has real whipped cream on it. Yes. And if I'm really, really lucky, it's got marshmallows, tiny little marshmallows in it. And, and when it comes to you and you're cold and, and, and you want comfort, and you even touch the, the sides of the, the mug just, just to warm up. You know, and then you drink it and your whole body feels warm, even though externally everything's cold. That's what Jesus is talking about, that you were hot and you comforted, that you you made warm what was cold. Or think about the other thing. You've been, you've been playing soccer or you've been out exerting yourself in some way and it's a hot day and you've expended your energy and somebody comes and they bring you a, a really cold glass of water, a bottle of water or something, and it's the water you like because there are a lot of waters I don't like. But they give you the water you like and you drink and you go, oh man, it's cold, it tastes good. I saw the other day water described as crisp. I don't know what that means, even. (laughs) Except that suddenly I want crisp water, you know? (laughs) So, what he's saying is either way, either way, you're counterculture. Come on. See, if it's cold out, you're hot. You're comforting. You're warming. You're noticeable. Or if it's hot out, you're not room temperature. You're cold. You're you're thirst quenching. You're refreshing. All right, stay with me on this. The only water that's lukewarm is the water that is completely affected by room temperature. In other words, it's water that's alone. It's independent water. So how is it? Because if you think about it, how does, how does a liquid get hot except that an, another element is at it? A catalyst is at it. You have to have some kind of fire, some kind of heat. Something that takes that which is lukewarm and, and, and you know excites all the molecules and makes it hot. And changes it. Well, what's the change agent? What's the catalyst? in the Christian's life, but the Holy Spirit. And isn't he called the fire of God? So that he's not, he's not bound to the culture. He's not stuck in trying to be what everybody else is. He's heating you up. Or the only way you can get cold is if there's a catalyst acting upon it. an an additional element a catalytic element and that catalytic element is the holy spirit and he's often referred to as living water so what he's saying here is absence of the holy spirit or at least absence of the holy spirit work so he's saying to these people you're dependent on yourselves And therefore, instead of being a group of people who penetrated your culture with the gospel, you're a group who was penetrated by your culture. You are no different. You're not not hot when everybody's cold and you're not cold when everybody's hot. You're just whatever everybody else is. And then he says this, because it's only you, and not you and the Holy Spirit, I spew you out of my mouth. Pretty serious letter, right? So here's what he says to them about themselves. See, they were convinced that they were faithful and true in their witness about themselves. They were convinced they had the amen. They didn't need the amen of God because they were rich. So what they had done is they had said... The ultimate thing is my own comfort. The ultimate thing is my own power. The ultimate thing is is that I'm successful. And they said, look, the fact I have lots and lots of material possessions because I have all of the things that this world can provide, then it must be that God has blessed me and therefore I don't need anything. Now Jesus' assessment of them because, again, they are missing the Holy Spirit. His assessment of them is you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Now, here's the thing. This is what, this, this is what determines whether you're a true believer or you're just a religious person. Is the true believer, when Jesus says you're naked, you recognize your nakedness? When a true believer, when you, he says you're wretched, you recognize, you don't hide it, you don't present to him, but Lord, I did this, and Lord, I did that. Because if you know your, your Bible at all, one of the hard sayings of Jesus is that many will come to me and they will say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this in your name, and that in your name, and this in your name? And Jesus says, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Apart from me, I've never known you. See, the the assessment of Jesus in many times, in many people's lives, is going to be the last and ultimate assessment. But the assessment really is true of all of us at all times. See, If you can get this, it it will alleviate so much spiritual stress in your life. There's never a time in and of myself I'm not wretched. There's never a time that I'm not pitiful. There's never a time that I'm not poor, blind, naked, and needy. It's when I open my eyes and I realize, no matter how well I try to dress myself, how well and pretty a car I drive, or what good job and status I get in the community, whatever it is, I still have the problem of me. And I can cover me up and I can put money in my pocket, but all of those things are not ultimate things. They're just temporary things. And so what happens with a lot of us is that we even use faith and we use prayer and we use it to prop up our wretchedness or to prop up our poverty. And, and instead, Jesus says, look, you think you're this way, but you really are this way. And, it, and if you voluntarily, friends, I mean, the day is going to come that he's going to say this to everybody. And he's going to say it to them face to face. And they're all going to recognize, and they're going to cover up, and they're going to be afraid. But if you recognize it now, I'm bankrupt. I'm, I'm without any means of my own. It doesn't matter how much money I have or how good my job is. Ultimately, what Jesus has to say about me is all that matters. And then he says to them this. All this I say to you because I love you. I say it to you because I love you. Now, for many of us, we are more of the the type that says, if you love me, don't point out the bad in me. If you really love me, you just cover this over. You would just accept me as I am and everything would be hunky-dory. And I've seen this where lots of people, the only friends they will allow are friends who will never speak truth to them. And only friends who will fight their fights Even if they're illogical, unreasonable, and actually ungodly fights. Jesus is is a friend who will wound you in friendship. As a matter of fact, he says it more than once, but he says it here the one that the Lord loves, he rebukes and disciplines. As a matter of fact, he didn't send the spirit of fantasy, He, he, he sent the spirit of truth. And that truth will either heat you up or cool you down, but it's going to change you. He will not allow even 30 seconds of fantasy to exist in his presence. Really, most of the time, it's the lies and the fantasy that quenches the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because he has things to say to you, and you're like, I'm good. I've learned enough. I've heard enough. I, You know, there's a little bit of gold shining there. It's enough. But that's not the way of the Spirit of God. The way of the Spirit of God is to know exactly when to share with you how wretched, how pitiful, how poor, how naked you are exactly when you need it. And when He's saying to you and revealing stuff to you and you're saying no, it is not long. I don't even know how many times you have to say no before you're you're lukewarm. But lukewarmness comes out of saying no to the Holy Spirit. And it is an ultimate danger. It is why, in many ways, you cannot simply trust that your faith is strong because it's strong when times are bad. As a matter of fact, what we're seeing in this passage is that faith is often destroyed by comfort, it's often destroyed by riches. It's often destroyed when we think we have all our act together. Because at that point, our prayer life, which has only been emergency signals to God, ceases to be relationship with God. So the question is Am I spiritually indifferent? Because I'm doing okay at my job? My relationships are all pretty good. Am I spiritually blind? Am I misdirecting my energy of my life towards temporal things when really and truly I could invest myself in the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Only he can really say for sure, but it's possible that we are more like Laodicea than any other church in the seven. Because we live in a fertile valley. We live beside a mighty river. We live where it's lush, where if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Right? So Jesus says, here's here's what I counsel you. And this is what I'm convinced of, that only the needy and only the hungry will accept his invitation. See, he says, buy your gold from me. Buy your gold from me. And really what he's saying there is more than you have to pay, but I've already paid for it. It's such a fascinating thing to me. This, this whole letter just blows me away because Jesus is saying, buy from me because I've already paid the price for the gold that you need. Everything that really matters about you, everything that will survive your death, is found in Christ. Your identity, your destiny, your substance, your character. The depth of even your personality and the beauty and design of your personality. Many of you don't even know who you really are because you've let pain and fear and pride all tangle up with the beautiful design that God made in you. When Jesus says all of that, all of that becomes gold in me. But it's not something you can pay for. No amount of tithing will ever make you gold. Gold. No amount of witnessing, no amount of saying, I don't do this and I don't do that and I do do this. None of that will make you golden. It is only the recognition, the repentance piece of saying, I'm wretched, I'm poor, I'm needy. It's at that point that gold comes because you recognize your need for it. Only hungry people are invited. I'm going to finish on this part. One of the greatest verses in all the Bible is Revelation 3.20. We use it for evangelism all the time. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock, and if any of you will open the door, I'll come in, I'll eat with you, and you'll eat with me. We use it for non-believers. We use it for people outside the church. But really and truly, the context here is Jesus is standing outside the door of the church. Now maybe it won't strike you like it strikes me, but here's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of the universe, the beginning of all creation, the ultimate, the archegos, he's called in the Greek. He is the foundation of everything. In every molecule in this world, there's a spark that he put here. And yet he humbles himself and he says, even though you don't want me in, I'm inviting myself. And he says, it's up to you, though. Will you open the door? Will you recognize that you're poor, that you're wretched, that you're pitiful? Will you recognize that? And instead of opening the door to your whole society, to your whole culture, to all of these things around you and become nothing more than one more lukewarm person. Will you open the door? And then he says something so powerful. Because why do we give in? Well, we give in so that our own needs might be met. So that we can eat. So we have clothes to wear. So we have a house to live in. And Jesus says, what? If you just open the door, I'll eat with you. And you'll eat with me. In other words, you'll have food. You'll have clothing. You'll have these things. Here, here's a secret, in a sense, that, that has to be understood by true believers. If, if you seek comfort and power and you seek success and recognition, then Jesus, the lover of your soul, has to oppose you. If that's your ultimate and He's not your ultimate, then He's a jealous God and He knows that you need to know your rightful place with Him and He will oppose those things. But when He's your ultimate, when He's your treasure, He knows how to take care of His treasures. Gold will never treasure you, even if you treasure it. But Jesus, who's calling you to treasure Him, already treasures you. And His desire is that every day, not just Sunday, but that every day would be a day of communion with him, of fellowship with them, of friendship with him, of oneness with him, so that in no way, shape or form, are you ever facing anything alone. In some ways, you don't have to have a crisis in your life. You don't have to have, you know everything taken away to come to the place to recognize, "I am who you say I am. I need what you say I need." And I'm hungry for what you offer. Everything changes from that. And what I've seen is once that's in place, then the promises of God, they connect with your home, they connect with your job, they connect with your friendships, they connect with your health, they connect with all things. But when those things are ultimate, then you're a a proud, prideful, unrepentant person. And he has to break that in you. I cannot imagine that it ever makes the heart of God glad to break his child. But I know that it makes the heart of the father glad when he sees his humble son Jesus standing at the door. And you open it. And you say, this is what I need. This is what I want. Will you stand with me? Does this make sense to you today? Listen to me. Some of you, you might be be new to this. You might be seeking God. The invitation is absolutely an invitation for, for first relationship with Jesus. There's no doubt in my mind that when you come to the place where you realize, I don't want to live lukewarm, that the only way that that lukewarmness goes away is if you invite the Savior into your house, into your life, into your heart. In some ways, that door is the door of the heart. But if you're a long-time believer, maybe you are birthed in a move of God, just like the church in Laodicea. It is so easy to drift. And it's so easy to settle into comfort. It's so easy to settle into relationships. It's so easy to settle into riches, all of those things, and just kind of have God as the henchman or the leverage to get what you want. And he takes it away from you because he loves you. Because you're his child. And he says, I want you to repent. I want you to see this doesn't work for you. I want you to open the door. Even if it's a closet that you're keeping from him. Or a bedroom. Or even just one room that you've you've committed to yourself. Today he stands at that door and he knocks. And he says, come in. Will you let me come in? And if you open the door, he comes in. Would you say this with me no matter what, if it's your first time or your 50,000th time? <laughs> would you say this with me? Just repeat after me. Lord, I hear you knocking. And it means a lot to me. Your humility. Your, humility. your seeking, after You're seeking after me. I open the door. I open the door. In my heart. You are the amen of God. You are are the faithful and true witness. You are my ultimate. My source. source. The very purpose of my life. my life. My My treasure. Lord, will you seal what you're doing? The very specific things that this means. I I will tell you again as I felt it in the first service. There is a a mist of the pleasure of the Father settling upon you. You see, when when you reject His Son, that's serious business. But when you listen to the invitation and you invite Him in, it makes the Father's heart glad is a pleasure. But I see this. (laughs) uh, I'm going to be messed up with this vision for a while. Some of you are hot chocolate right now. Some of you are ice cold bottles of water right now. But because there's a catalyst in your life, you're you're not room temperature. You are what it needs to be at the moment if it's refreshing, if it's warming, if it's comfort, if it's satisfaction, if it's quenching of thirst, whatever it is, because there is the personal divine resident who is the catalyst of your life. We seal this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. We have leaders who will be up here I'd love to pray with you, maybe unpack this some more for you. God bless you. We will see you next week.